Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you think about it, it's not easy to keep from just wandering out of life. It's like someone's always leaving the door open to the next world. And if you weren't paying attention, you could just walk through it. And then you've died. Hello, and uh, welcome to another episode of Hollywood Gold. I'm your host, Daniela Taplin-Lundberg, and I'm here with my right-hand woman, Becca Camerata. Hey, Bexy, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited today to follow up last week's episode with Ted Hope and James Seamus to truly... I know I use this word a lot. I'm going to stop using the word iconic, but every time I... (laughs) <laughs> we talk to these producers. I do feel like they've done so much in our business and we're so lucky to be talking to them. So James and Ted produced The Ice Storm, which is one of my favorite films, one of Ang Lee's great films and something that James also wrote. So it's so unusual to have a producer who also is a screenwriter. And I think that he did that quite a bit for Ang Lee. So I'm fascinated about their dynamic and how this film got made. Yeah, like you said, another iconic indie New York film producer and multi-hyphenate, you know, he writer, producer, he ran a studio. And and so very curious to hear his perspective from all those different versions of himself about how this was made. Yeah, they're both so brilliant and have so much to say. So uh, I'm excited to get going. James Seamus and Ted Hope, two truly iconic producers and two people that I I really look to and admire. And you guys have had such tremendous careers and have made such great films. And so today I wanted to focus on The Ice Storm because I really do feel like that film had a real cultural impact. And we try to find films here that feel like they exist past the moment of their release, right? They somehow continue to resonate in, in our culture. So I want to go way back and I want you guys to just tell the story of how you found the piece, the Rick Moody novel, right? And and where it all began and how, James, you decided to write it as well. And I can't wait to hear. So you guys just jump in. Great. And uh, Ted Hope, good to see you again <laughs> or hear you again. Um, yeah, it's one of those stories, as with many of the films we did with Aang, it started with zero intention to okay. make a film. Ang Lee, one of our great, great, great filmmakers. Yeah, thank you for filling that. Uh, see, right there. <laughs> that's Lee. often my job, just putting in last Could names. Have been Aang. And, yeah, 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 that's, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, it, it began uh, in uh, the MFA 
fiction writing program at Columbia University, which I didn't attend, but my spouse, Nancy Kikorian, attended as a okay. classmate of Rick Moody's. And she had read his books. This was the uh, After Garden State and suggested I read it. I read it. I loved it. And in one of the rare moments when I turned to Ang and said, you know, you might want to read this book. It will never make a movie. There's almost no dialogue in it. It's basically an internal free indirect discourse of a kid from a period to be impossible to make, but it's such a good book. And I just like, I, I wanted to talk to him about some of the ways in which Rick was playing with narrative and structure and voice. Mm-hmm. And he read it and called me back uh, almost immediately, having forgotten that I had told him that it was had nothing to do with movies or movie making, <laughs> just assuming that it was, a, in a sense, a submission and that we were going to make this as our next movie. Right, this was... <laughs> And you guys had made movies with Aang, correct? You had made a couple movies with Aang. Four. Yeah, they, they'd been four films previously. Pushing Hands, mm-hmm. followed by Wedding Banquet, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and then James and Aang, I wasn't involved with Sense and Sensibility. And during the making of that film, I was on set every day, mainly in the west of England and Devon, and then would go back to the little country in weird place and uh, write The Ice Storm. Okay. Uh, so was I was writing The Ice Storm while we were making Sense and Sensibility. He had decided that the book was totally cinematic and it was something that he understood. And I mean, it, it always, I always think of Ang Lee when I'm thinking of like an American sensibility of someone who wasn't obviously born here. And what made you guys think that he would sort of inherently understand that, that very American sort of story? Well, he was coming off of Sense and Sensibility, which isn't exactly a study of, you know, Taiwanese uh, culture either. Yeah. So like he'd shown to be a a master uh, of manners. Right. And, you know, the unspoken as well as the spoken and the awkward spaces as well as those that had doilies on them. And it was a transition for us when we took it on. We hadn't, you know, started even pre-production on Sense and Sensibility yet. Uh, but I remember when Lindsay and Emma Thompson sent first they first sent the script to to me and for Sense and Sensibility, and I remember calling Ang. He was overseas. He was uh, in Asia, and I said, "Ang, I'm I'm reading the script. It's a Jane Austen novel." And even he was like, "Jane, oh wow, okay." And I said, "No, on page 84 of the script, there's a scene between the two sisters, and there's a line in the script that was clearly written long before." Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which was out, and that's he was doing publicity for. Mm-hmm. And there's a line during the fight that eventually became the argument between Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet, where she says, what do you know of my heart? And that was a line that I had written in uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman between two sisters. I said, Stop. I, said I think we're, we're on familiar territory here, to Ted's point, this kind of comedy of manners. But we were right. also looking to transition at that moment out of what Ted Ang and I had realized at the end of Ang's first three films, you know, Pushing Hands, Wedding Banquet, and Eat Drink Man Woman, we, we called them the Father Knows Best trilogy. Mm-hmm. They all starred the same extraordinary actor, Sun Lung, uh, as a father, you know, as a patriarch in a moment in Chinese and, and Taiwanese history where we really thought, ha ha, <laughs> that patriarchy was maybe <laughs> uh, kind of transitioning. Uh-huh. Uh, out uh-huh. a bit, under the, in particular under the forces of global financial capital. Right. And indeed it was. It was morphing at the time. And of course, by the time you get to Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, a, a movie about an, a widower chef and his three daughters, but it turns out the entire plot flips around the recognition that he too has desires. He too has 
kinds of uh, e- emotional longings for connection. So when we finished that, we were like, well, we're done with that. Um, and then we read Ice Storm. And of course, the patriarchs are just completely lost, you know, mm-hmm. the Kevin Kleins. Right. And that there's a kind of flip between teenagers and parents, this, this post-60s moment in the States. Right. And uh, so it, it became a really interesting location to continue to grapple with these stories without positioning the parents in anything but what they were, which is kind of on the obscene margins of teenagerdom, right? Right. So that was the challenge of it. So I was a little, you know, slower to read the book. And I totally thought it was unmakeable Mm -hmm. in that it begins with this incredibly great passage of, you know, you have to remember this was the 70s, a time before fax machines and Rolodexes and trimline phones. So from our perspective, like everything was already, you know, well past the 70s. And, you know, I was super like this can't be done. But I remember talking to Aang and I never wanted to make a period film until James and Aang went off and made a period film. And then uh-huh. I was like, hey, guys, <laughs> you know, uh, but I was I was. I, because I was so insured, some conversation along the way, I said to Aang, you know, like, how are you going to make this film? Like, mm-hmm, I, I mm-hmm. was just really surprised. Like, why do we see this? And he said, well, this could all be science fiction for me. So just to back up a little bit, when he came to you and like got sort of guns blazing, like this is a movie, what was the initial thing that appealed to him? Uh, well, he wasn't guns blazing. It was just more like he assumed I was already doing it. Okay. Like okay, that was the weird okay. thing. Uh-huh. Uh, at which point I was like, dude, you have read the book. You understand there's like five pieces of dialogue I can, can transcribe and the rest we're going to have to right. kind of make up. The other great, I think the great challenge of it, and I think this is, it wasn't as if Aang saw exactly what was going to happen, but uh, we've always spoken of our collaboration, Ted and Aang and mine, as, as starting these movies for the challenge, for mm-hmm. the not knowing uh, what's going to happen. And I got in the habit of writing for Aang in a very minimal way. I mean, here, of course, with the uh, added layer of the gigantic research engine that we put together um, as a team. But that is to say, I, I always say to Aang, you know, unlike studio scripts, and I, I enjoy writing studio scripts, so it's, you know, I, I like writing mainstream stuff too. But I said, unlike those, which are written as kind of battleships mm-hmm. that the studio buys from you, knowing that even if they hire a mediocre director, they still know what they're going to get. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Scripts for Aang are best when you provide challenges where you go, look, you're just going to have to go in and, kind of experience this and we'll see if it works out. And the Ice Storm is a very good example of a script that, you know, was fully formed. I mean, the script is the script and you yeah. shoot the script. But that said, uh, there were things in particular that posed unique challenges and still to this day, probably challenges that I've never encountered in their purest form as I did with the Ice Storm. The first is is simply what we call in narratological theory, the question of focalization or voice. Mm-hmm. The book succeeds precisely because it does this extraordinary hat trick. It speaks in a kind of first slash third person mm-hmm. who's an omniscient narrator. So it's a kind of free and direct discourse. So it's got a voice, but it's also somebody who's all over the place. And then in the last page, you know, after all this tragedy has struck, 
it emphatically turns to first person. And you realize that this has always been about this kid, Paul, who was played by Tobey Maguire mm. eventually in the film. So the emotion of the book is such that it maintains throughout the entirety of the novel kind of ironic and sardonic, mm. you might say even satirical and knowing tone coming mm-hmm. from a voice that's coming clearly from a time much later than the events that are depicted in it. I see. And yet at the very end, uh, in the face of, of the death of a, a beloved uh, uh, brother, you realize it's actually the, this guy. And so wow. the recuperation of this experience into uh, somebody who's speaking with a voice, both retroactive, but also still within that trauma is extraordinary. Uh, that is a literary trick that if you try to pull cinematically, you'll make something I'm sure that you might find a video sale, maybe at, uh, at great numbers to the Museum of Modern Art, you know, collection, but you're not going to be releasing that film commercially. Right, right, the, right. So I had to create a, a, a structure for the film that in a sense mimicked that trick, but could never actually reproduce it. So James, did you, did you sell, did you guys sell it as a pitch to Fox Searchlight and they paid for the screenplay or did, how, how did the, okay. And they were not just that. They also then gave us a deal, which allowed us to hire Ann Carey to then uh, join the team, you know, and that. Oh, okay. So you've set up the ice storm. They've given you a, a deal for your company. Good machine. Correct. You've brought on Ann Carey. You're writing the script. When you write with Aang, do you just go away and write, or are you constantly in sort of communication? What's your process? I, I find it's far better to go away and write okay. uh, when writing for Aang because um, Aang's uh, script notes are wildly philosophical. Okay. So uh, mm-hmm. his first question to me, almost invariably, when I turn in a draft or pages, is deceptively simple because it's one word. It's why. Oh God. Which is the last the eternal why question I ever want to answer having just written the script. Like, <laughs> dude, does it work? Like, I don't know the right. re- like the reason right. we can get, it. but through the course of the conversations that uh, start with that question. And of course, then uh, you know, getting more specific, it gives us both the grounds on which we can identify the reasons why we're going to put a year or two of our lives into something. So what was the answer to that? <laughs> I I refused to answer, but it would just bother me. I, I you know I, I I would try I would improvise always different answers, and then you come to the kind of answer I I've already given that the yeah. sense of finding a space to deal with the patriarchy mm-hmm. in the abstract, but also the fact that by then having uh, aged into and through a few movies with Aang. I myself was a father. Yeah. Uh, Aang, of course, was the father of already of two boys uh, when mm. we first met him. And so we got to allow Aang to uh, uh, work on something where he could perspectively inhabit both generations, Okay. the kids and the parents. Whereas I think for the first three films, he was very much working through his, uh, shall we say, daddy issues right here he's the dad so it's these are his issues too you know it's funny the question you you had asked james before about you know was a little bit like why too and when i along the way of asking ang why in terms of making this movie like his go-to answer frequently i I'm sure you remember James was he would mimic breaking the ice tray and make a face he'd and it was really like oh. that ice tray and he was like that sound 
Yes. Kind, kind of like the sound of Ted's voice. Yeah. <laughs> for a podcast. No, but like that visual metaphor, that makes so much sense to me. When we were trying to figure out what made Ang Ang, this guy understands the emotional mm. impact of camera placement and mm. lens like nobody else. He just got that. Yeah. And you started to see that that same sort of kind of abstract expression of lens and camera placement also extended into props and color mm. and wardrobe. And they all had this, you know, real emotional component. It wasn't just logic and philosophy right it, it was something that really pulled him and drove him through like he was so excited always to like the planning of shooting elijah jumping through that ice field yes yes the moon right in his totally moon on those moon boots like, yeah like, that yeah. was something like he was always looking forward to and like a lot of that pulled him through like it was a question of nature you know whether it was nature and revolt or that, you know, mm -hmm. that there was always that side, the fierce side is long alongside the beautiful side of, right. of things. And then I think also like the interconnectedness. I remember like when we were shooting the fry scene and everything was kind of a Rube Goldberg. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was when I understood the movie. Right. Like everything was like a series of connected little pieces that could have gone off in a different direction had only. Right. You know, right. and the things that sometimes feel like they don't make sense start to make perfect sense. Why right. does Christina Ricci, why does Wendy and Joan Allen's character both shoplift right. and get granted freedom on the bicycle? Right. right? Because right. they do. And it feels like so right. perfect. Right. And yet, like, you know, at times people would say, like, but why did that happen? I well, love indeed. It. Yeah. Go, go, James. Go. Indeed, love on our very, our very first uh, recruited audience screening. <laughs> uh, You're really jumping ahead. You guys are well, literally blowing my mind. I want to go prep. Yeah. No, we don't do, do that. No, don't you're don't just do that literally fucking will, me up I, right now. Yeah. All I'm about to say is yeah. the, the fry scene in particular uh, that is to say the death of uh, of that character played by Elijah Wood. Yeah. I mean, audiences who have not been prepared with reviews and word of mouth and all that kind of stuff, just walk in having been recruited for a recruited audience test screening on the Upper West Side of Manhattan Yeah. and show up and they're kind of laughing along because it is a social satire. Right. And then you kill the kid. And there were two things that happened at that moment. One was the most extraordinary hush of an audience oh. I've ever experienced. I mean, it was just astonishing. Oh. Followed by the lowest test scores in the history of our <laughs> no, career. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> You're kidding. I think it was like 31. It was thir 34. Oh, my Top two boxes. God. This is inside lingo. But when you go to a test screening, you're asked to, whether you definitely recommend or probably recommend it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a movie that they think, oh, this will work, it should be at least in the 80s, yeah. depending on the genre. Yeah. So uh, to be in the 30s for both those boxes oh. was a sobering moment. Our uh, audience is getting bobbling. really smart because we um, do a lot of these and the, we get a lot of 80s and 90s. We get a lot of movies that test in the 80s and 90s. But then we get a lot of successful movies that test 
40s, 50s, and like, and it's just against all odds that these movies succeed, and they're great movies. So it's it's not it's not against all odds. What it is, it's the type of movie and the fact that movies do exist in a social world. Now, again, these days because they have to be watched because you're in a state of semi-consciousness and you just allowed Netflix to run the movie for you when you get landed the landing page. Yep. It's harder for those kinds of movies, the ones that uh, defy your expectations yes. uh, to succeed because everything's supposed to kind of sp- flow smoothly and mindlessly into right, right. a slot in your brain. Right. But no, those are the films that often uh, can can, uh, can work wonderfully. Yeah. Uh, if, if the proposition is such that the surprise is recuperable in some framework that makes sense that you can talk about with your friends after you see the movie at a test screening, they just hand you a piece of paper and you're like, what the hell did these people just do? Okay. So we're going to circle. Go, go, Ted, go. go. You just, I don't want to ruin the flow. You guys just go, you go. I'm just here. Great. When I watched the film, the last time I watched, you know, which was, you know, fairly recently, what James is describing that this utter revolt of the audience I think is actually precisely what also makes the film age so well. The film, you know, curiously was selected as the opening night of the New York Film Festival. And I kind of thought my career was going to end because it didn't play all that well. It's not the perfect movie to open a film festival sure. with, not the joyous occasion. It's not a huge upbeat up film, yeah. But mm-hmm. a lot of what people had said to me around that time was it's so odd. Like the film feels like it's supposed to be like a comedy and get into that, you know, go further with the satire and it's denied. And like, what's up with that? But James had written a really funny script. Yeah. There was lots of room for Ang to play. Yeah. And there was James is being modest. Like in that test screen, the first half of the film was rockets. Mm, People mm-hmm. really loved it and laughed, and there was tons of uh, of jokes. But yeah, once Elijah goes out on the diving board, everything yeah, and you you wear you become to realize that everything is a precipice. Everything is about to crack and yeah. will break, and right. all these had been leading to it. You can't stay in that joyful zone of laughter. Yeah. But I think it gives what is such a, like when James was describing, you know, the challenge of the, the novels, you know, structure and, you know, trick, they found that method of delivering something similar. Like you really do feel like you, I think you brought and leaned forward and watching the movie expecting like a big laugh is always going to come. Mm -hmm. And then you you become almost a detective and like something strange here. There's something that's happening. And you accept, I think particularly by the time Adam hand birds character is, you know, blowing things up. And then Sigourney tells him to play with the whip. You're like, I'm in the weird zone. I'm totally. totally (laughs) Parallel universe. Yeah. Yeah. People, it's so hard now for audiences, uh, I think, to accept a level of unknowing, of ambiguity, yes. uh, of willingness to enter that, you know, liminal space that you're not sure where it is going to be. Yeah. But I think that's precisely what makes it still, you know, that that's of its time that the movie set. But I think it's also why, you know, it now stands as a, you know, unique work.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you for this Thanksgiving holiday. And for all the material possessions that we have and enjoy. And for letting us white people kill all the Indians and steal their Wendy. tribal lands and... Stuff ourselves like pigs, oh, okay. even though children oh, in Asia okay. are being napalmed. Okay. Jesus, enough, all right! We can intellectualize why the movie scored the way it did, and it makes so much sense to me now, and this is like many, many years later, but at the time when you guys get that score with your studio, are you in a panic? We did not. I think other folks did. Like Already the studio had pressed their own panic button, because the film, and for its time was expensive for what it was. Uh, we were very blessed to have a budget that was not huge, but it was really yeah. ample, really. So we were kind of in like a P.T. Anderson budget, zone, a little less than that. I, I had read it was 18. Is that? It, was, it netted in the, around 15. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the gross was close to 18. So Fox, during post-production, the folks called us and said, hey, uh, congratulations, we just dumped the most of the international rights on a French company. Uh, so... They had cleared out. They were they, they had kind of gotten out okay, uh, in a okay. sense in terms of risk profile. The folks from France had been sold. We had nothing to do with it. They just kind of read the script. We didn't even know. And then they bought it. And they're like, so one of the gentlemen from that company was there in New York and he was certainly displeased. He mm. was just hadn't I don't think they had really given much thought because sense and sensibility was such a big deal. And right, it was such a big, right, it was like, oh, right. this is gonna be great. The interesting thing was we didn't retrench. We didn't play defense. We weren't panicking. We just tried to keep making the film better at what it was. And so after that screening, we we continued a process that we'd already begun in pre-production. If you look at the published screenplay of the script back in the day, they used to publish books with screenplays. Yeah, You will see an, a large number of very, very, I would say, uh, uh, even though I'm a writer, I'll just say it, very funny scenes, some of which we shot, some of which we didn't. And we started uh, actually weeding out the funnier stuff. Mm. Some of them were the really some of the best directing Aang has ever done. Uh, you were, were just, you were pruning the funniest scenes. Yes. So anything that really pushed the audience into too comfortable a place uh, with their own laughter, mm. we started to nuance even more. Wow. And then the the shuffling the deck of the 
of the last, I would say, real so-called about 20 minutes. And it's one of the things that you may or may not have clocked in watching the movie. And if you watch it again, you'll you'll remember what I'm about to tell you. Uh, and it will inform your viewing of the last 20 minutes of the film, which is there's more or less only one and a half sentences spoken. Mm-hmm. So this is a very, you remember the film is a very dialogue heavy film with lots of you know kind of witty repartee and funny things. Uh, but in fact, the entirety of the last part of your viewing experience is uh, visual and it's musical. It's almost one musical cue. Michael Dana, we ended up in the edit taking pieces of his temp and starting to really blend and meld them. And then he wow. came back and gave us just one extraordinary cue. So you can imagine recording a cue like that. Uh, it's pretty rare to uh, sustain uh, performance when you're recording score uh, for that kind of uh, length, when it's carrying so much of the emotion of the film. So James, that was something created in the edit that wasn't scripted. There were certain things, there were certain scenes that were uh, a little, had a bit more of dialogue. It wasn't a huge recreation, but it was. I would call what Tim and Aang, and I think Ted and I participated obviously very closely with that. I, I would still call that a rewrite. Let's just go back a little bit to when you actually started making the film, the script was ready, and just like talk about the process a little bit of finding your truly incredible cast, really young talent that hadn't been established yet. And I just want to sort of hear about how that all came together, because it really is one of the great ensembles. There's going to be a lot of self-serving anecdotes about to be served up. (laughs) By which of you? I think both. (laughs) The the casting was a challenge. There's quite a few people that turned the movie down in different stages along Mm -hmm. the way. But it's, it is one of, uh, I think James talking about this because it's still to this day, one of my, you know, favorite experiences I got to have, mm-hmm. which, uh, Avi was, was casting it. Yep. Um, Avi Kaufman, the Love great her. casting director. Yeah. Amazing. I forget why, but James and Aang couldn't be around on this period of time. So I was with Avi out in LA. And we were way, way, way behind schedule, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the, we were in a hotel, and, like, the whole hallway was filled with teenagers. Okay. And so we started bringing people in two by two. And the very last people of the day, barely squeezed in, were Toby McGuire and Katie Holmes. They so addi- so your, your, your memory is serving you partially well. Okay. But there's actually <laughs> more to the story. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you, Ted, because okay. it's actually really Okay, I love it. So uh, the reason that I was not there in L.A. for the first L.A. trip was because my second child was born while we were in the middle of casting. Of course. And in fact, uh, she was born at uh, Mount Sinai at uh, about mm, 7 a.m. And at uh, uh, 8.45, I ran around the corner to the Carlisle Hotel to have breakfast with Aang and Sigourney Weaver to try to convince Sigourney to join us and then ran back to the, the hospital. So I couldn't make the L.A. trip. And the LA trip, the, the first one, if you remember, I said, but we have to tape. This is a whole new thing back then, really, putting people on videotape. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I got the cassettes. You had gone out and, and had scoured and already gotten some great things. But Aang had uh, looked at everything and said, there's just no, there's no one who could possibly play Paul. I'm not sure I can do the movie. I haven't found oh uh, uh, the, the character in the pile of videotapes that I was blurrily watching was this kid who had actually been in a feature before, but really mainly short film. And that was, that was Toby. Mm. And he was terrible. I mean, I really, I, Ter- I just, terrible audition. It was the worst audition you could ever imagine. So I asked leave. I remember I'll, I'll forget that you were, then you were back in uh, LA. 
to, and I, I asked Annie permission. I said, can I call this kid? And I know I never do this, but can I just give him some directions? Mm. Um, Cause he had played the thing completely stoned uh, as if he were stoned. It wasn't stoned. Okay. And um, I gave him a bunch of, uh, so I really said, you've got to come back in and blah, 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 blah. And uh, let's give this a second shot, uh, which is really interesting. Cause he had, Toby to his credit, the reason it was terrible is he had made a really strong decision. Right. That moment, you know, right. it's, it's, you, you need somebody on the other side of the table to have a strong decision. Like, okay, now you're right. It just never happened. It was just this right, flow, right, you know? right, 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 right. The Katie Holmes thing was not that Katie uh, happened to be coming in. I don't remember this at all, but that uh, it was decided that we needed somebody to read against Toby. So she was just plucked from all these girls in the hallway. And um, that's not quite how I remember it being there. <laughs> but, you know, that's, you know. Uh, but what, what, Memory, what I believe you know. Amy told me was was that literally, and what the interesting thing was that it was not she was not yet that we were not yet reading Libets the part for Libets, and mm-hmm. that when she came in just to read lines because they just needed somebody to read lines on the scene and that's the scene. After she left, the thing was I thought that Aang had just said, "Oh yeah, of course she's he." Like there was a momentary forgetting that she didn't already have the part. Uh-huh. She was so perfect, but you uh-huh. don't remember that. No, I, I remember something quite different. But okay. Tad, Tad, you tell your version because this is the first time this has ever happened on the pod. Yeah, Two no, versions it, of the same story. I love it. Sure. It's fairly similar. Like I, I didn't, I don't recall Toby having auditioned before. I totally remember falling way behind and trying to bring it, and we were bringing people in two by two, and they auditioned, and Avi and I were stunned. We thought they were fantastic, but mm. the tape, you know, maybe we weren't none of us really knew how to watch things as well on tape or what at that time, but it, absolutely it didn't work, mm. but we believed that it did. And then James and Ang, you know, did it again. And that's when they got cast. But I also remember at the times was just kind of curious, like Katie told us later, you know, she, she had won some teen acting prize in Ohio mm-hmm. and she begged and begged to that's her cool. father to come out for pilot season and he made the deal like, you know, you go out for this set number of times. And if you get a role, great. But if you don't get a role, you can't ever ask to do this again. Mm. And we were her last audition. Stop. And, you know, like literally, like, I'm sure she will tell this story. Like if she hadn't got cast in Ice Storm, Katie's career would not have been what it what it is. It right. Was this last, was pre yeah. her Paul Dawson's Creek no, Dawson's Creek was an amazing. We we really got to know her and and her family were wonderful. Her mom was great. You know, these often, as you know, when yeah. you cast young people, you cast the family, and that can be a yeah. disaster. Yes. And uh, but in this case, they were just spectacular. And we uh, just had long conversations about college. There was a whole thing. She was going to college. In fact, she she got into uh, Columbia where I teach. Oh. And then right. I'll never forget the phone call I got from her and her mom, which is like, um, just saying because. It was so important for them, uh, this moment, and saying, there's this new network called, you may have heard of it, called the CW, and uh, right. I got this part, and it's really interesting, it's the show, and blah, 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 oh and in a sense, they were asking for advice, and I was like, you follow your path, you're so yeah. smart, and yeah. you're so talented, and this sounds, you know, I can't tell you no, don't do that, go to college right. instead, why right. don't you do summer, so she ended up, I believe, doing a summer program for a bit and then getting onto Dawson Creek. And then that was, that was it. But oh she's always God. maintained a real interest. I mean, she's a lively intellect as well as a 
wonderful person and actor. So yeah, yeah. But the casting on it was just was mind boggling. Uh, the whole the whole thing. Yeah. We, so that was those two. And tell me about the other. Like, tell me about Sigourney. They were all just <laughs> such incredible talents. Yeah, yeah. No, she was just astonishing, and she was at that point in our careers, and maybe still forever, uh, the probably the most intimidating person we'd ever. <laughs> Uh, dealt with, but it turned and out she was she, willing to confront us too. Yeah. Like she, she right. when she thought something wasn't right, and this wasn't, and she did it with love and commitment. You know right. that if she was like this, like we're working, this isn't right. She would come and say directly, speak clearly, mm-hmm. tell us, and you know, wake us up. Right. Well, it's also she. She got into the game, shall we say, with the usual shock. Uh, she had been working on another show. So she was the last person to join us on set. She actually arrived the first day of production and had to do her hair and makeup tests while we were shooting the first morning in the park in New Canaan. Mm. So we had set up a whole workstation. And at one point during hair and makeup, she was kind of wearing this bell-bottom outfit and this whole kind of clute-esque yeah, sure. thing. And uh, I said, oh, come on. Uh, we're having a break. Come on, say hi to Aang. You know, he's on set. And she walked over and she went right to Aang and just said, Aang, how do I look? You know, just the kind of this wonderful movie star uh, way. And Aang, who we now know has this, a predilection for this uh, uh, kind of uh, thing. He just turned around. He One look up and down. He goes, oh, you look great. You look just like Jane Fonda. And I, I could see at that moment. It really was a red rum moment. Like I thought, well, this could literally ruin Ted in my life for the next two and a half, three weeks. Well, you know, you know, sure, sure. And she just, there was a, and honestly, it was like a slap almost like she just kind of like, she just, Oh my God. Uh, and then she just burst in the warmest smile you've ever seen. Thank and God. Just, she just knew who Aang was immediately. Right. Right. Why she was going to love him for the whole show. It right. was just that, it was that thing that sometimes <sighs> happens. And I, I'd gone through it on sense and sensibility where Aang was capable, especially if he was slightly annoyed of just giving that, you know, Emma, this time don't do it so old, you know, those kinds of directions. And, uh, uh, and, but he always gets like, if I ever gave that kind of direction, right? Like I would be dead. I would be strung up from a tree in the park. You're boring me. I have a husband. I don't particularly feel the need for another. You have a point there. That's a very good point. We're having an affair, right? An explicitly sexual relationship. Your needs, my needs. You're absolutely right. Ladies and gentlemen, this train originating from New York's Grand Central Station is back in service. Next stop will be New Canaan, Connecticut. New Canaan, Connecticut. Next stop. As I'm reminiscing about the viewing I had on Saturday, it does feel a little like science fiction in that, like, we're set in this very traditional New Canaan backdrop, sort of the suburban malaise of Connecticut. But the architecture, the houses that you guys chose, none of it sort of fits. It all feels like a little bit off. And I wonder, were those decisions that were made along the way? Or James, were you and Aang, we're going to like create this story that should sort of possibly fit in a box and we're going to fuck it up? Because you're so right. Nothing fits in a box. It does feel like a science fiction feature now that you're saying that. 
And that is fascinating. That to me is why it manages to transcend and sort of stay in the conversation. Well, there are two overlays in in terms of this science fiction metaphor, which I'd now like to officially drop, um, (laughs) that we had to deal with in crafting the kind of oral and visual world of the film. Yeah. uh, Based on, obviously, the script and Aang's take on it. And those overlays were, were number one, a a deep dive into early 1970s, late 60s and early 1970s Mm -hmm, film mm -hmm. culture. And so we really did immerse ourselves in the the Paul Mazurskis and Mm -hmm. the Hal Ashby's Mm -hmm. and the Robert Altman's. And you find in many of those films, characters from the same socioeconomic and social bracket that you see in the ice storm. And many of them are embracing the kind of design and uh, fashion aesthetics that look to us now like kind of weird Solaris Mm sci-fi-ish kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And Ted and I really had a a lot on our plate in pre-production in terms of the design of the film and and in particular things like costume design, where the temptation is to dress everybody and house everybody in stuff that like you would see in ads in 1973. And Mm -hmm. I would always say in 1973, people were wearing clothes that they bought in 1967 Mm -hmm. and in 1973. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the houses that you notice, you know, the, in particular, the, the glass house, and that's a new Canaan, Connecticut kind of vibe, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of modern, high modern, and then then slipping into postmodern. You remember we scouted like Philip Johnson's glass house. I remember. Right, right, right. It's very particular that area. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and so, but then you also see the more traditional homes, like when the key party, et cetera, which we we built on a soundstage uh, that we had to create in an old armory in Harlem. The living room, that living room, that whole house was a, was a soundstage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's great. Yeah. And it was also oh. about a hundred, hundred degrees. Oh. Um, as the, we were, by the way, we were shooting in spring. So all the snow you saw was potato starch and, uh, and oh bio, uh, degradable goop uh, from a hair gel manufacturer. Oh my God. I would so, never have. And, this. and plastic icicles that were stuck with Velcro. Well, that was the other thing. Okay. So I want to yeah. get to the icicles, but so, keep going. So keep going. on the one hand, everybody's living in, in a space that's uh, partially created by their socioeconomic and, social aspirations, their fantasies. On the other hand, they're living very much in a reality that Mm -hmm. is catching up with them. Mm -hmm. So that overlay, I I, I think we eventually managed very well, uh, often with some amount of stress because we really were playing whack-a-mole with moments when like suddenly everybody's wearing the exact same trench coat. And then we thought, no, that seems pretty good on the the railway station. That's a humor beat. Sure. But elsewhere, we were trying to kind of give that grain of real. And I right. think that also goes to this question where that, that Ted, that, that you answered uh, so well, which is tonally, it is weird to live uh, in an aesthetic space that's conditioned by a kind of satirical distance, ironic distance, and yet retain, as we hope we did, you know, genuine love and affection for everybody, mm-hmm. such that by the time tragedy strikes, you're not laughing at or mm-hmm. or kind of observing, you're kind of in. And I think that's what saved us uh, was that 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 uh, very honest link to these people. We never we never treated them as specimens, and uh, it's hard. It's very hard to do because the audience really assumes a very easy position in these kinds of social satires, where you know specimen hunting is really the the the, the presumed activity of the audience. But you know, having gone through the ringer with uh, Jane Austen, who is kind of the the absolute utter master of social satire, mm-hmm. but also people. We ha- at least had the experience of kind of learning at her knee. You guys have to just tell me a little bit more about creating the ice storm itself. Cause it really is visually just so stunning. And 
was it really just like tricks like you're talking about, like sound, you know, sound and plastic icicles and that's what it is. It just felt like so much more. Thank you so much for mentioning sound because I I do think that the sound design and we had, obviously it was an astonishing team, but we also had the benefit of being able to work sound. And this is partially Aang, Mm -hmm. uh, but also Tim Squires, our editor started as a sound editor Uh and uh, he really had a command of the then very nascent digital tools to help. But really, I would say, you know, so we had just the most incredible sound department, you know, Phil Stockton and, and sound, the old sound one guys, Riley Steele. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so, so, so uh, eventually began. And so, um, so much of what you're experiencing is the ice storm is actually in your ears. Yeah. But yeah, that early ice storm was happened, but then it melted immediately and we had not scheduled any of that stuff. Right. So we were, I think the morning that we shot the last scene at the train station, the morning of the ice storm, I believe that it hit 80 something. They're all bundled in their coats. I think it was, I think it was like 82 degrees. It was this freak situation. So it's all movie magic. There's nothing, nothing real about any of it. I could talk to you guys for hours and, and the film just did have such success. And I feel like we, we really did capture so much of the story. And when the film came out, you, you guys went to Cannes. Can you just take me through a little bit of like how you felt it was received in the moment in time and what that was? That's an easy story to tell because we were with executives from Fox who were uh, terribly nervous and expecting the worst. And, and uh, but it wasn't competition. It wasn't the Grand Palais. Mm-hmm. And at the end, this okay. is long before the trade started running a tally on how long standing ovations are. Okay, you know, now sure. that seems to be like a thing. Yeah, sure. Like, Seven minutes. Know, oh, amazing. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, it, it was the, the the ovation was endless, and, oh, and I'll, my I'll never God. forget. I was sitting next to a wonderful executive, uh, Bill Mechanic, who was the mm-hmm. co-chair of mm-hmm. Fox. You know, one of the guys responsible for little movies like Avatar. Uh, sure. And, um, <laughs> He, he hadn't really been part of the process, you know, it had been searchlight and they, they'd done, already done this deal. And he kind of trudged along in his monkey suit. And, and I, I was, and at the end of which he was crying, you know, the thing was over, he was crying and he just couldn't, he was stunned for really, it was whatever it was, seven, 10 minutes, something like that. One yeah, of these yeah. Massive ovations. Yeah. And, um, and it was just, and he was just like, he, he was so happy. Like I, there was nothing negative about like, thing, he was very honest. Like I had no idea. And I was right, like, yeah, right, you, you, right. don't worry, dude. Neither did we. <laughs> the hard part there was at that time focused after Cannes was, of course, on the Oscars, the awards later on in the year. So it was going to be one of these movies that was going to come uh-huh. out and do the the platform release. Right. And at that time, to their credit, the folks at Searchlight were really interested in trying something experimental with the release, okay. which they thought was going to be a great thing, which turned out not to be. And I, you, I, I, I give them credit having run a studio for for trying. Uh, but they decided that they would release it on one screen in Los Angeles and have it sit there for three months until we got all the Oscar nominations and then they'd widen it. And wow. uh, so what happened was after like three or four weeks, all these friends of mine were like, what's going on with your movie, man? Like, I can't say, you know, where, when's it coming? And I saw this some ads, but now is it gone? And I'm like, no, it's still sitting there at the theater. And so the air really deflated. Right. Uh, from the balloon on the release. And this is the classic moment where the producers get to blame the distributor, but having sure. been a distributor for 13 years, I'm used to it. Sure. Even now doing it to myself kind of, <laughs> um, but, uh, but it was one of those uh, moments when you saw the machinery 
you know, somebody took a pass, like really went to step back and threw the ball yeah. and uh, it didn't quite, quite work out. Yeah. Um, but you know, so be it. I, yeah. I, I actually think what the heck, you know, yeah. um, there's a reason for everything. It was a great idea that never really got the film into the tracking into its right. place in that right. year's box office. There, there were a few other little details, you know, uh, where when the decision was made to alter that strategy, it wasn't necessarily fully thought out. We were following a, a little movie of searchlights called Full Monty, sure. who had been tremendously successful and was booked in, you know, like 750 theaters. Right. And they had made a decision to pull that movie and they still had screens. So all of a sudden our screen count did jump up, Mm. but hadn't been supported with with ads or along the way. So we had a totally dismal at the moment we went, quote, wide for the time. We had a totally dismal per screen average and couldn't get any further bookings after that. Right. It just, right. It wasn't know, performing as a spur of the moment decision. You know, I think like, yeah, the Doug Flutie, whatever, like the whatever the last thing was didn't work. So we got to do something. Hail Mary. And then from there, oops, we made yeah. a mistake. It's and, funny. Yeah. I, I talked to um, Albert. And Ron, Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa about election and they they sort of had a like a similar fate where the film's legacy is so much greater than the actual box office, right, of the day. And so I'll, I pose a question to you and I, I feel like we've answered this a lot along the way, but like why do you think that the film sort of transcends the moment in time it was released? But like what do you think it is that stands the test of time? I think that the film for me, I do get a, a steady flow of emails as I'm sure Ted does. From folks, and there's also that moment when your kids, if you have kids, become teenagers and they find the DVD. There is that moment when uh, you realize you have teenagers and they pop the movie into the DVD player while you're on a date out, with, you know, date night with with the spouse, and then you have that discussion, which is really fun, I have to say. In classic form, James and Ted, you have not really answered my question, but I love oh, you. I can, and- I can give you. A- I can love you back. <laughs> I can give you a little tidbit. But you've wait, wait. answered it in a, in a, in a way that it, it is answered. I, I in your nonconformist way. Ultimately, the fact that it's distinct and that it doesn't settle for being easy—that it is Much a like authored too. work mm-hmm. that is not programmed or schematic. Yep. That has awkward moments. Of, you know that that does feel as emotional truth. Yeah. Right? And it's really willing to go there. Yes. It is willing to go there that allow is precisely the things that executives frequently fear is what actually enables the trust, the audience trust, that it doesn't talk down to the audience. I defy anybody in watching just the first half of the movie, know where it's going other than know that there's a key party in a right. night storm. Right. They're not tracking the plot, yeah. you know, getting yeah. elements of truth from the characters, but like, hello, like it's, it's hard to, to know where it's going. And that's delightful. Yeah. You know, that, that every bit of cinema, like you, you see, you know, Ang and I, I think it had already well established himself, but every single aspect of that movie is considered, you know, yeah. like not, not only did Ang have a scene by scene Bible character by character and all, all of those things, but like every day on set, 
he was listening to new pieces of music, mm. you know, to school himself in it. That it wasn't really cut. Like uh, we hired Michael Dana from the very beginning, mm-hmm. so he brought in his own temp. We didn't. So many movies are, you know, cut to somebody else's score. You yeah, know, temp. this was Michael's work that we were using from the beginning that he was delivering. You know, yeah. it became a classic score that's many, you know, well, ultimately, I think uh, American Beauty was tempted to the Ice Storm score. Now everyone you still uses the American Beauty score mm-hmm. to tempt to, and you can kind of see that, you know, track along the way. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, it's really that, that. That's a great. That filmmakers were empowered to go for it. And they yeah. did. I'd also say on the music, Alex Diamark, who worked with us on, as music supervisor, we we really came in. Very, I had a very very strong opinion, even as a screenwriter. Uh, but Ang was great about it. I said, I don't want the greatest hits of 1973, uh, you know, as, as the interstitial, transitional, needle droppy kind of stuff. So we really went for stuff that was you would have kind of remembered or remembered or mm-hmm. would have heard in the you know, on the, on the car, but it wasn't like the number one hit. It was like number yeah. 27 on the chart. Right. Right. And those songs are very much the, the fabric and the wallpaper, the kind of emotional wallpaper of the era. Totally. Um, but they don't throw you, they yeah. don't throw you yeah. out. Yeah. And They're probably just, a little more affordable too. Right. And now you say it's a deep cut and the, mm-hmm. that phrase didn't exist. Right. At that point. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, well, you guys are extraordinary. I, have such affection for you both and you taking me on this wild journey of describing this film has been incredible for me. Thank you guys for doing this. I hope you had like a little bit of fun, just like walking down the memory road in a circuitous way. I I had more fun staying in the present with you, but uh, (laughs) so that's all good. (laughs) I appreciate you guys uh, doing this with me and you're the best and we'll do it again. If you'll allow me to invite you back. Back at you. Thank you so much for having us. Bye, guys. Bye bye. Bex, what a whirlwind of a podcast that was. I mean, that interview was so bananas but so amazing did you did you find that to be true like that the storytelling was so circuitous and yes. all over the place but so effective but also I found myself laughing hilarious yes. hysterically yeah at various points because the rapport between them was just both so comfortable but they both just like taking jabs at each other and <laughs> I'm really excited to launch the Ted Hope James Seamus comedy hour they really know each other so well and obviously yeah. produced a ton of movies together and both went on to such incredible careers, sometimes together, sometimes not. And so it's so incredible to watch two people who have so much history also retell the story like and have different memories, you know. Yes, I love so when funny. they're like, oh, well, that's not exactly how it happened. Uh- <laughs> of course, I spoke to A.V. Kaufman just after because she's this incredible casting director who casts all of Ang Lee's movies and Spielberg and you know she's just worked with the best of the best and I asked her about the casting of Tobey Maguire and she of course had a third story so it's like the that story Wait, so neither of those were is. true no she said neither of those memories are correct so I thought that was hilarious 
What about and, the know, Katie Holmes thing? Did they pluck Katie Holmes she, out of the hallway? Sort of. I mean, her memory is that Katie Holmes was on her last stop. She had like won some Ohio beauty contest or something, which is what Ted had remembered. Yes. But that Avi just happened to be standing on the lot and Katie and maybe her mother or her father came up to Avi and just asked Avi to speak to Katie. And Avi ended up liking Katie so much that she pulled her into the room and Katie was not prepared for the role at all. Oh, but like Avi so had just sort of like fallen audition. in love with her. Correct. Correct. So that, that's actually that. a better story. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And that it was true that Katie was going to go back home to Ohio if something didn't land. And then she got the ice storm as her first job. I really respected that, that her parents were like, all right, you want to try this? We can try this, but we're putting a time limit on it. We're not just letting you go out there and throw everything away. If this doesn't work out, you're going to try it and you got this much time and that's it. And well, it's so funny because you, you know, AV also said that her parents were pretty amazing and really smart. And father was this like really smart lawyer and then cut to like 20 years later, the rumor had always been that like Katie's father was the one who got her out of the Tom Cruise marriage, that it was his wit that like managed to extricate her cleanly from that, from that relationship. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. What else did you note about their, their storytelling, their producing anything? Well, well, it's funny because one of the things that struck me the most about this was them saying that after they read the book, they were like, oh, this is clearly not a movie. Like, this is unmakeable. There's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. Who would Mm -hmm. ever attempt to turn this into a movie? Yeah. And then the genius of Ang Lee was like, no, 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 we can do this. Yeah. Um, But just, I thought that was really cool that James read this book, was like, this is clearly not a movie, but it's an amazing book. And then she wrote a movie. (laughs) Right. Well, it's so funny because, you know, Bex, I think we're sort of in this moment of our own careers and the TV space. I'm I'm going to sort of reference a project that we're doing right now. But, you know, I think just getting out and talking to people and meeting people and throwing things at the wall, sometimes that you never know who's going to respond to what. You think you can predict yeah. what someone's going to want to do. You think you can predict what you think Adam Sandler's going to do because you've seen everything he's done before. And then he goes and stars in a Safdie Brothers movie and it's like completely random and it ties to nothing he's done before. And so I think the thing that I was reminded of listening to those two is sometimes you just got to like talk about what you're interested in and like things come together and and you never know what filmmakers or other um, people working in the industry are going to respond to. So you kind of just have to stay open and like nimble, right? There's definitely um, a lot of networking that happens in this industry. And sometimes it does, it gets a little exhausting, to be honest, to put yourself out there and to show up for these meetings and to meet different people and to just talk about everything you're working on over and over again. But that's kind of how these connections are made because yeah. it's that yeah. one moment where you say you mention the right project to the right person and yeah. then you end up collaborating together. And yeah. that's yeah. kind of the magic of how this all works. And more often than not, I, I feel like all the stories we've heard have sort of been tales of that accidental common interest or like, yeah. you know, I'm thinking like Bull Durham, like he pitched it to Tom Mount who happened to be interested in baseball and like Greek tragedy. You know, yeah. you just never know why. But even when Kumail just sent 
Michael Showalter, the script and yeah. like, it was just like, Hey, read this. And Showalter was like, I have to direct this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like yeah. a sh- sharing of ideas with, yeah. with people and they, they lead to actual movies getting made. That's right. So James and Ted, thank you. Thank you for reminding us of how movies get made and you're in your very circuitous way. You guys are crazy, but we love you and we respect you and we worship you. So hopefully they'll come back again and because they, they made many movies together and separately. They're both yeah. just like incredible, incredible. I would love to listen to them tell another story together. They were just, I know. I know. <laughs> they were so funny. they're always like on the edge of fighting, but that was great. All right, guys. Well, that was another fun episode. Remember to follow us at Stay Gold Features. DM us, tell us the movies you want us to check out and investigate. And uh, remember, stay gold. Stay gold.